Hello, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of the Jason Howell Company Speaker Series Zoominars. My name is Jason Howell, and we have a great episode once again for you today. Our guest is Mr. Patrick Drum, CFA, CFP, MBA, all kinds of letters, probably one of the smartest lists of designations you can get in finance. And our topic today is aligning sustainability in the global bond market. Yes, we're going to talk about bonds today, not stocks, not options, but the thing that's pretty unpopular in the retail world, bonds. And we're going to talk about sustainability and how those two can go together, not just in the United States, but all over the world. But before we do that, let's just talk to Patrick. Let's ask him how his day's been. Let's be nice. Patrick, how has your day been? It's been great. Thank you for asking. And thank you for uh, inviting me. It's, been, it's a true pleasure and delight. Oh, you're welcome to be invited. Thank you for coming. Uh, as I was saying to you earlier, it just it makes us look good when we have smart people that we're associated with. So you're one of those people. Well, so thank you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, I'm having, as I indicated, some lighting issues on here. And, and for all the whatever acronyms that I have behind my name, it, we figured part of it was the smudge of the camera. So it's lack of technical skill here. <laughs> right. Uh, smudges of cameras. Yes. Um, well, we're going we're gonna to go ahead and get started despite all smudges, which you wiped off actually the smudges. So we're going we're gonna to get That's started. Right. I will go ahead and share my screen so that folks can uh, see exactly what they came for. And if I get any beeps, I'll let them in. But for now, for the folks who are here, if you came to aligning sustainability in the global bond market, then you've come to the right Zoominars. Patrick, again, we're so happy to have you. We got a lot of questions for you, sustainability, bond investing, all of it. I know you got the answers uh, because I know about the letters behind your name. But before we get to all of that, let's just have a word from our sponsors. And of course, our sponsor is Jason Howell Company. Feel good about your money. Jason Howell Company is an independent family wealth management firm run by two owners who consider it their family business. We believe that dual income parents with high achieving kids, a lot of us have those, uh, should feel good about their financial successes. We believe they can be community stakeholders as well as stockholders. You have a plan for your life and the causes you believe in. We fit that plan to your finances so you can feel confident, excited, generous, hopeful, and just overall good about your money. My business partner, Doug, and I are both married to patient wives. We still have young kids. Uh, we're dedicated to their learning, uh, our learning, and teaching others about money. We're based in Northern Virginia, but we serve clients virtually all throughout the United States. So to feel good about your money and learn more about sustainable investing, our topic for today, and our unique family governance process, well, just go to jasonhowell.com. All right. And with that, we go to our guest speaker today, Mr. Patrick Drum of Saturna Capital. So as I promised you, Patrick, we're going to go through your bio a little bit. Not enough people do that. And for those of you who um, got the newsletter or you saw this bio before, great. Uh, for those of you who are coming in and watching this either on YouTube or other places, let's learn a little bit about Patrick. You know, first of all, these are not universities that I see very often, or maybe others. Why Western Washington University? Why Seattle University, Albers School of Business? Uh, good question. Well, as at the time, I had um, completed my CFA charter holder designation, and 
really knew that in part, I was curious a little bit, I was more curious about sort of the MBA program. So I was at the time working um, uh, at Washington Mutual Bank. That might be a certain entity that might resonate. And in fact, yeah. I was one of their mortgage traders. <clears throat> okay. So that was in fact part of some of the group that created some of that unfortunate mess, um, creating the product. But in part, I could see the writing was on the wall. I had no clear idea as to what that real outcome would have been looking like. Um, but also it was a Jesuit school. And so I didn't know what the world would be. And I had a lot of, um, um, uh, a lot of respect for the Jesuit school and academic programs, but also recognizing a bit of practicality may come in hand that the world may change. And if I needed to transfer, which I never did, um, huh. and they offered a lot of flexibility that Jesuit schools honor each other's programs. So that was in part a bit of the motivator. Uh, one of the things that I found that was really accommodating is they really uh, twofold. One was they were a little more lax on scheduling because I had at that time, my daughter was born. So with okay. young kid trying to do an MBA on top of working and so forth, I wasn't really interested in a sort of hardline agenda, but rather flexibility. And second thing was they really engaged the um, leadership community. Um, the Seattle community has so many Fortune 100 companies. And so they had a boardroom class and others where we got, we, we, we were beneficiaries of, of a lot of CEOs and board members of various institutions. And so it was phenomenal that engagement that I didn't see occur at other universities. All right. So I've got, I've got a few big words in here that are important for people looking at education. I've got practicality, mm. I've got engagement and flexibility, which, you know, anyone going back and getting their MBA could get. And, and wow, out in Seattle, where there are so many of the brand name firms like the Starbucks and the Amazons, right? All right that makes sense. That's practical. Uh, yeah. Well done. Well done, indeed. And you've taken that education and not only with the university stuff, but again, these letters after your name are powerful letters, Thank chartered you. financial analyst, certified financial planner, MBA. I mean, I, you look back and you think, where could I get my finance education? It's going to be these designations. So uh, good on you. And, and you've done some work as an adjunct professor at a very unique school, this Presidio Graduate School. Tell us about this school. Correct. Yeah, that, that was a great experience. I'm a big believer of um, reciprocating, that is serving the community when I can, how I can. And, and it's most likely going to be kind of based on my skill set. Um, it was originally um, Pinchot. Um, it was called Bainbridge Graduate Institute. And it was one of the very first M sustainable MBA programs by Gifford Pinchot. And it was a vision back quite some time ago. I'm trying to remember, probably in the late 2000s is when they launched. And, and so their goal was to formalize a sustainable MBA program, really one wow. of the first in the kind. Sustainable um, MBA program. Okay. It was. Yeah. And so they had actually a hybrid program. So I taught and it was like one... So there were students all around the country from, there was quite always a few from the East Coast, Boston and so forth, Alaska and whatnot. And once a month they would fly on in and they would do like a whole four day intensive on Bainbridge Island, which is um, across the water from Seattle. And, and so it was a great opportunity because it, it focused on a much more entrepreneurial spirit. So a lot of these students um, were creating projects and business strategies to permit uh, different ways of, of creating catalyzing change, but through the capital markets or business entrepreneurship. And I thought that was much more important than just say policy approaches. Yeah. Um, but it was a great experience. Did that for a number of years. 
No, well, that's neat. And then to hear how you can use capitalism intentionally for the good is really what I think all of this is about. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you've been in the business since the 90s. You, you've seen a lot, um, but you've really been taking these ESG considerations in since sort of the, the aughts, I, I guess we call them, uh, the O's. And, and now at Saturna, you're running here the S- Sustainable Bond Fund, the Amana Participation Fund, um, and, and most I think in particular for this presentation, conversations around the Sextant Global High Income Fund. Tell us, I mean, this sounds like a lot of responsibility for one person at this firm. How do you balance all of this at Saturna? <laughs> Good hobbies. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We weren't going to mention your lack of hobbies. <laughs> well, it, the way I obtained, so I lived in Tacoma and commuted to Seattle for almost 20 years. So prior to the technology of phones, I had about two hours a day. Absent naps, I, I simply use that time. I called it university on wheels. And so I simply am a, was just, a, I'm a ferocious reader. So I just started thinking, well, let me use that time. That's really where that was able to sort of earn those marks. Um, That's terrific. Um, but for, yeah, so yeah, lack of hobbies or what may have you, those, those are part of the attributes. But. And you're able to, to run these, it sounds like three funds. You also help on this Malaysian fund. And so that's kind of four funds. C- correct. I, the Malaysian fund that was a fund that I had managed at the onset. It was a Sharia compliant bond equivalent fund um, that wound down a couple of years ago. I'm, um, I am deputy to the high yield income fund. So my involvement is, is not as much focused. A large part of my attention, though, is really consumed with the Sustainable Global Bond Fund. It's a multi-currency sustainable bond fund, the very first of its kind launched in the U.S. I knew that a lot of practitioners and investors were looking for a global exposure, and it just didn't. It just simply doesn't exist. And still, to this day, I have yet to find a real proxy for it. The Amount of Participation Fund was the very first of its kind to provide capital preservation, adhering to the Islamic principles. So anything under the Amana umbrella reflects the Sharia tenets. Um, that was been that has been in part such a, a unique experience, and I couldn't be more grateful. And in parts, quite a bit of travel and quite a bit of learning different communities. It's been a steep learning curve. But yeah, if there are things are a bit off the wall, I tend to somehow kind of roll into them, and it's been a blessing. And it has made you a global stakeholder, which I think, um, well, we don't even know how much we've benefited as a planet, thanks to some of the work that you're doing. So thank you for that. And I was intrigued by this topic and excited to speak with you because even as a, you know, person in the financial industry myself for many years, many of my colleagues, we are so educated on stocks and bonds. And you know, options and bonds, insurances and bonds. Mm-hmm. Uh, bonds is always kind of this this outlier, maybe used to balance a portfolio, but expertise is rare. Uh, there's a friend of mine that's in a local firm, and you know, he's the one I go to to really get my expertise. But in this area of sustainability, which has been our passion now for a couple of years, to hear the opportunities within the global bond market, just exciting. So maybe you can touch on that, introduce me and many others to really the, as a first question says, how we can use the bond market to positively impact sustainability. Absolutely. And, you know, I often view, you know, the fixed income market globally 
far exceeds any asset class absent um, the foreign exchange market. Wow. And it's far exceeds the equity market and quite a large global equity market in size. But even with that being the sizable one, equities tend to have a little bit of the story and a little bit of the pizzazz and interest. And I often say, you know, fixed income is usually overlooked, but sorely missed when they step away. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're sort of under the radar, you know. Um, but really, with regards to how can sustainable, or rather, how can using the, the bond market is a wonderful mechanism and has been um, a tool that investors can align their value sets in a variety of different functions. Um, clearly, in the last few years, we're all very familiar with what are known as qualified proceed use bonds, such as a green bond, a social bond, and they've evolved to other sort of um, attributes, such as a sustainable bond and sustainably linked bond. And now at times back, I saw in 2019, some of the earliest S sustainable development goal bonds, so SDG bonds. We got a lot of acronyms. And again, you see a few of my names, so that just, why not throw a few more out there? Why not? <laughs> I mean, you were part of the uh, principles of responsible investment for UN. We could mention that too. That, that, that's been a joy to be a part of, um, a lot of work. Um, but at the end of the day, these are all just kind of acronyms to identify that these issuers of these bonds are designating certain projects that are aligned to certain standards, voluntary standards as set forth by various um, principles. And say like a green bond is dedicated to certain environmental related projects, whether it be mit mitigation, adaptation, water relation, pollution control, um, um, circular economy, and um, one other one I'm forgetting. But at the end of the day, these are just different tools, but it also extends beyond that. And there's a lot of practical examples and some private notes and what, some that, that we currently hold. But there are other actors that are out there that actually provide a much longer and tenured history of providing investors an alignment. And we use them quite frequently in our portfolios. And these are some of the, the um, development banks, such as the International Finance Corporation. It sounds very corporate-y, but they're yeah. actually a part of the United Nations. And they actually have a very unique um, charter where it explicitly mandates that not just in, con in conjunction to profits, that they also address socioeconomic concerns. So they have a dual mandate. And this mandate goes back a long time. What I like about them from sort of, again, we started with the word practicality is they're AAA rated, they're supranational. And so they tend to garner a bit of liquidity. They do issue sometimes these qualified bonds, such as green bonds, and sometimes they don't. But for a global sustainable bond fund, and if I want to get exposure, say, to Brazil, or to Mexico, and there's other multinational, supranational type banks that exist out there, like the European, um, and you know, there's a variety of quite a number of them. You know, Asian Development Bank and so forth. The list is long, but they have these AAA credit ratings, and they have this higher liquidity. And I can acquire exposure, say, in the um, um, the Brazilian real or the Mexican peso without having to worry about the credit risk in that environment. But I can get that currency exposure and so forth. We're all talking about low yields, but I can tell you right now, there's some. I'm. You can get a 11 over 11 percent yield for one year notes in um, Brazilian real. So interesting. Tends to get people's attention because everyone's like, "Oh, the yields are so low." I'm like, "Well, if you're just focusing on the U.S. market, yes. And the U.S. market only represents 40 percent of the world's market." So you're leaving 60% off the table. Um, but in other areas where you can get this value added, sometimes 
this global bond space for impact is a lot smaller. It's less than 1% of the outstanding stock. So we, we have to look at things a bit broadly. And we use four pillars in sort of examining that framework. One is climate um, and climate related issues such as renewable energy. Second is biodiversity in a broad set of issues within that particular sector and that includes like water and influence. Third is, is really focusing on broad stakeholders. And we're looking into that a variety of lenses and we have eight KPIs on that with inclusive of a few factors, but we're looking at diversity such as gender, um, ethnic, uh, financially disadvantaged, and lastly, governance. And governance is a very, very interesting dynamic factor when you're dealing with global. I'll give you two examples and kind of bringing it home. Um, some of these companies you would never hear of. Uh, one's, one company um, just mentioning is Storzo Enzo. It sounds kind of funny. They're a Finnish firm very proactive and very forward thinking. Um, they are a 700 year operating company. Wow. Been around the block a few times, but what they do is they are essentially a pulp and paper type manufacturer. Um, but what they do is they've been taking consumer and commercial plastic products and resubstituting as a paper biomass solution. So housing, um, building siting is being built out of paper related or pulp products. They've okay. even come across an ability, and I still find this a little hard to believe and fascinating, you know, the carbon in those little batteries, the AA batteries, they've figured a way, apparently, um, they're trying to scale on this, is to use biomass as a source of energy in these batteries rather than carbon. Biomass European instead plant. of carbon in the batteries. Right. Yeah. Is Elon so Musk doing that yet? I'm sorry? Is Elon Musk doing that yet with Tesla? I don't know. He seems just to walk on water. We'll see. Uh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> um, one other example, just to kind of align this, and these aren't qualified proceeds bonds. So I, I, I travel quite a bit or at used to, and I'm starting to restart that. Um, but in part, I'm in the Middle East and it's a bit hot there. And I'm going to be returning here back in late May, June, and it's going to be warm, but 70% of the energy consumption in that region is air conditioning. They have massive power demand. And so air conditioning is one of the big drivers and it's not a big shock. Um, so there's this uh, company called Tabreed. They're, they provide industrial size cooling facilities for like, you know, what be a mall or what have you. And they're able to do this on a large scale. It's kind of the, akin to, you know, the steam radiators in the Northeast that radiate your home. Yeah. You view it if you reverse it and it'd be a cooler. Well, they're able to do their work um, to reduce carbon substantially by 50%, akin to over 300,000 cars a year. So it's interesting solutions that you would not normally think is every day, some old, some young, and some innovative. So it's part of our job is to sort of kind of navigate these things and identify it from an investment framework. Well, I'm fascinated that you underscored uh, initially the, the point that I was in some ways almost afraid of, but have reconciled with that, the fact that the equity market is much smaller than, say, the currency market and the fixed income or bond market. And that's why, you know, people like you and who do what you do, it's just so important. And I'm still stuck on that 11% yield on a one-year Brazilian bond. I usually get people's attention. Yes. Uh, Mexico, uh, one-year paper is over 6%, a little closer to 7 uh, yes. Yeah. I got yeah. more work to do. And the friend that I mentioned, I, I'm happy to mention his name, Micah Potashnik over at Macro View Investments. I'll ask him about that. They're in Bethesda, Maryland. So they're, they're neighbors of ours. Please um, well, well, neat. You've kind of alluded to a little bit of the second question, which is how are emerging markets different from developed bond markets? There is that currency delta. 
Um, what else could you say about the differences between investing in that kind of a way? You know, that is, that's not an easy question. It's sometimes I'm asked to sort of, um, how, how do you sort of, you, how do you synthesize a global world? It's akin to kind of, let's go to the buffet and we see this massive entree of various foods and flavors and delights and say, tell me about it all in one sentence. So (laughs) it's it's a lot. Let me kind of give you a little um, flavors. There's a lot and it's very regional um, and regions have a large play from a sustainable and sort of adaptation of that particular environment. When you're looking at emerging markets with respect to sustainable evolution, they are still at a much earlier stage. Um, The developed world is far more kind of formalized and structured, particularly led by the, the EU, such as with the EU taxonomy and the social um, SDFR, um, that's the Sustainable um, Disclosure Financial Regulation. But in the emerging markets, it tends still to be a bit more aspirational. It still tends to lack some KPI, still tends to lack a lot of data, but they're getting there. And different regions have different flavors. Um, and so that really comes into sort of requiring a bit of the work and it requires us uh, my colleague, uh, the deputy portfolio manager, Elizabeth Alm, and I are on the call at weird hours. We're having a call with a group out of Singapore um, regarding their green bonds. And you know what they present and what their story is, is their story was fascinating. So it really takes a bit of this homework. What's a bit interesting? So I'm going to nerd out for a moment. So do this it, is when I it. pause and kind of put on the blue light special. Okay. Um, so we know the four C's of where the credit markets Uh, the bond market, uses the four Cs. We talk about it from capacity, collateral, covenants, and character. Hopefully no one's sleeping on that point. But anyway. No, no, no. They should be awake still. Those are the five Cs. Those are the four center fours. But I'll add three more Cs to it. So we're going to have seven Cs. Not that this is global and worldly, but I thought the seven Cs was just kind of catchy. (laughs) That makes sense. (laughs) Right. The The other three are culture, context, and colonialism. And what I mean by that kind of gives you some context. So the four C's, capacity, collateral, covenants, and characters, kind of just the pillars of how to think about credit analysis. But when you're looking globally, you kind of, you need to add some extra flavor to it in a different framework, sort of like how, why we use ESG. It's just, it's a due diligence framework that just brings more tools to the table. And culture is a real important aspect because we know that different communities and cultures around the world or different geographic regions have different cultures. And that imparts food and flavor and all these important aspects. But we know like in, in Latin America and different parts of the world, there's a much more sort of paternalistic um, influence. But it's interesting, there's other parts of the world, there's a much more maternalistic influence. Uh, so I used to travel a lot. And, and, and when I do, I, you know, I'm, in, I'm frequently in Malaysia, frequently in Indonesia and Brunei. And we do quite a bit of engagements that we have a subsidiary and an office in Malaysia. And when I'm doing engagements, at the executive level and the board level activities in the investment community levels, typically nine out of the 10 attendees are women. And these are Muslim countries, which is pretty interesting. And let yeah, me tell you, fascinating. I'm yeah. typically the only white guy at the table How about <laughs> as that? part of our team. So it, it, it's, it's, you know, you've got to be on your toes and they are sharp and they ask very tough questions. They're very cogent to what's going on. Um, the world is very attuned to the U.S. Um, center stage. So that's culture. Context really is an important aspect for sort of offering a perspective on practices, the history and priorities. 
not all cultures sort of embrace sort of the cold capitalism that maybe the US does. And so different cultures like just Canada has a much more socio kind of economic kind of framework. And those are things that take in consideration. And there's some flavors in there. Colonialism though comes into play in sort of legal structure. So while a certain country may have nationalized themselves some time ago, typically they adopt that, um, that country's um, legal structure. Like the Ivory Coast was colonized by the French. So there's, when you look at and read the prospectus in the legal framework, it has a very French kind of flavor. Um, Indonesia was largely um, colonized by the Dutch. Um, I'm in the Middle East and they were colonized by the English. And so what's interesting, like Oman, United Arab Emirates in, in Saudi, they, they, they have that construct, but they also have different um, legal frameworks of their local laws. And then on top of that are the religious. So you're kind of navigating three laws. I'm not a legal expert, but these are things that I sort of think about. But it's interesting, for example, they don't have what is known as beneficiary laws. So what we use is an importance for like a trust, like a grantor trust or special needs trust. Those are sort of where you're designating a non-person entity to have certain beneficial rights for the fiduciary interests of that particular individual. So those are some things they're trying to overcome. And so these are just many of the nuances of kind of um, surfing through the seven seas. Amazing. Um, so seven C's makes up some of that difference on the emerging. That's how you get it into one sentence. You say, well, let me tell you about the seven C's. There you go. There, there you go. I'm here for you. Right, seven course meal. So, or seven. That's even that's much more international. You don't get seven course meals here yeah. in the United States. Um, I, I also picked up on something that um, was important, I believe, when we talk about emerging markets we're not talking about the rest of the world beyond the United States. We're talking about emerging markets. And so there are some developed nations that people could argue are ahead of the United States when it comes to sustainable investing. There are. There are. And it, I mean, clearly, you, you, the bifurcation tends to be on developed world versus non-developed world or, you know, uh, so like Australia, Canada. These are developed world players and they have different standards. Interestingly enough, um, Latin America has, has a long history, particularly Brazil and, and sort of, uh, other Latin American, South, South American countries, excuse me, have very progressive standards that most are not aware of. When doing some of the earlier work with the United Nations in formalizing the focus on the fixed income as an asset class, we had quite a bit of exposure from Latin America. And they have a lot of rules and regulations. It, there's a bit of a tension because you see a lot of political kind of dynamics for a better lack of term, yet they have this regulatory environment that has these high standards and bars of regarding reporting, regarding sort of best practices um, for, for sort of what is known as an ESG framework. And then you have sort of these cultural differences. So they kind of tend to clash a little bit at times of what you see and what's observed, but they have a, a following of, of the rule of law and these things matter. Um, I'm not a specialist with regards to Latin America as may as I am per se in um, Southeast Asia or the Middle East, just where my attention is. How would you categorize Japan? Japan's come a long way. It was under Abe. He really kind of created a genesis and in part that was trying to reignite inflation, one of which was to um, embrace much more sustainability, but it was also women and inclusion in the workforce. Um, Japan has... Um, 
I'm trying to think here, the metrics here, according to uh, the global GAI, um, Global Alliance for Sust uh, Sustainability. I know I'm forgetting an acronym in there. Yeah, because um, <laughs> there's the US SIF, there's yeah. the Euro SIF, and then the Japan, I, I don't know what it's called they're, either. They're akin to, they're akin to the US SIF. They sort yep. of create this metrics. And they're about, I think, want to say about 35 trillion in sustainable bonds. And that was, uh, excuse me, sustainable assets globally as of 2018. And they had experienced about a 35% growth from 2016. I haven't seen any of the new updates and data, but the, the largest the country that demonstrated the greatest amount of ESG work, it was a factor of three, was Japan. Yeah, I think and from 2018, they, 2020, yeah, they went 300% increase. They went from a 300% increase for, with regards to sustainably aligned funds. Mm -hmm. um, the Global Alliance for Sustainable Investing. Ah, I think that's it. Yes. Yeah, you might be right because it's supposed to have the sustainable investing part somewhere because the other yeah, US it, it is everyone else. It, again, it's, it's it. all these acronyms. If I follow, something might spill out. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, cool. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to keep you longer than you should be. Um, so let me power through a couple of these. Hmm. Maybe with Saturna, um, more specifically, how do you find quality bond issuers in the international process? What is your process um, for finding those? Uh, maybe you can give us an idea. You know, that's kind of the fun and the joy of this business. And what I like about this is it's it's kind of a walk in the woods. And I'm up in the woods. You can see us, Mount Shuxon's behind me. and Mount Yeah, Bates yeah, it's behind beautiful me. behind there. Yeah, it is, even though I'm all shadowed up, which is probably good because <laughs> I was in the sun a little too much. Um, so it is a walk in the woods and it's a process of discovery. There is no one way. Um, one way is I have our own proprietary screening process where that helps me identify securities, one of which was the Storzo Enzo that I talked about. Um, there's others where broker dealers that I have relationships. I have a lot of localized broker dealers on the ground as well as the larger players. Um, they provide introductions to um, ideas that I might not completely come across. So, so there's partners because there's no one person has a corner on the market on all good ideas. So there's others that sometimes introduce ones. Uh, clearly we do our own homework on the credit and the sustainability, but at the end of the day, it comes from a variety of things, our own sort of screening, others introducing. And what I call lastly, side, what I call sidewalk talk, I gain more value of talking with people on the ground, whether it is investors in our funds or other funds, issuers. And I've come across companies like that one I talked about to breed when I was in the Middle East, I'm at the CFO and had a long chat and started looking at the economics and the business model. And I was like, this is really fascinating. And so you're able to kind of get a lay of the land. So it's really kind of a threefold process. And sometimes you're just really scratching your head because there's some issuers that are really good, but might be overpriced. Some issuers that you demonstrate some improvement or they're deteriorating. So you kind of have to keep this short list of companies and ideas flowing. Um, and it's always changing and it's very fluid, but it's always a process of discovery. And then also kind of the hard thing is knowing when you're starting to find them not moving that right path. And sometimes you might need to put them aside or have that conversation and engagement. And we do do that. Um, I would argue that bondholders have a lot more engagement than equity shareholders. It's just equity shareholders tend to have a lot more sort of um, branding and attention. But when you're a fixed income holder, you're, you're, you're only as good as the income you receive from that issue. Yeah. And so you're really making dang certain that you're going to get that coupon payment. 
Um, and that's why that ESG factors are so important because if you face an ESG or credit impairment, you don't have, and typically this low yield environment is so low, really to offset that. Well, most equity players say, well, yeah, you know, we'll just hold on to it. It'll come around. <laughs> so there's so much to know about bonds, man. It, it's oh my fascinating. Goodness. And uh, I, I think we would be absolutely remiss speaking about the rest of the world and using the word global if we didn't talk about what's happening today between Russia, Ukraine, and the rest of the world. And so in the context of our webinar here, how is Russia's war with Ukraine affecting, in this case, bond markets and even sustainability within those bond markets? Yeah, that's a good question. It's, it's a, there's a lot going on there. Um, and it's a bit heartfelt. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll admit within this previous lifetime ago, I, I, was, I was actually a Russian linguist, but that was another story. Oh my gosh. Um, Navy brat grew up. Um, you know, there's five things that really kind of come to mind in, in sort of bre in brevity, but one that isn't with brevity or lightness is the tragedy that's going on. It's just really heartbreaking on so many levels. I mean, I, I don't think we need, I mean, you see those pictures, it's just, it causes a deep pause. Um, yep. So thoughts with them, most people. Yep. Um, the second part that comes to mind is there is there is clearly some disruption and there's clearly not some disruption. Uh, countries such as Poland and in Hungary and, and so forth in that particular region, their bond markets are a lot more affected because of the regionalization of that area. China and other parts of the planet, such as Latin America, you wouldn't see it. So that ripple has sort of, there's a less to the where that ripple is. Um, but I think it is on the third point is it's really ca causing in part a bit of a recalibration with regards to governance and risk as it's related to bond pricing. We, there's a lot of bad actors out there and there's just there always will be. And there's, a, there's sort of this spectrum of um, governance behaviors. And we all knew that Putin was not a particularly good guy, but we sort of just know that he was a bad guy. But yet we still see a lot of people investing into it. I think there's going to be real honest recalibration in the pricing. And, and there's a lot of attention as to what that means with China. And I'm not here to impart a normative view or politics. This is simply economics. And we're seeing quite a bit of regulatory changes with regards to their employment on, say, the uh, technology on the equity side in China. What does that mean? And what does it mean for like Hong Kong and so forth? So I think that that imparts a bit more. The Putin is far more jarring in, 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 in quick but it also lends itself to how you think about from those type of exposures. They're not without risks is where I'm going. Uh, yeah. The fourth thing, the fourth thing that really kind of where I tend to find myself, the four and five tend to really hold much more of my attention. Um, the fourth being um, the implications, energy and food. They're very, they have this very um, kind of, um, they really can rear their head in a very securitous way. They're either going to be positive or have a negative kind of feedback loop. Right now, you know, about four weeks from now, Ukraine needs to, um, see, to, to plant the crops, as well as our farmers in the U.S. are soon to plant the crops. Well, when you see gas prices where they're at, that's going to be embedded. And in, in, in that cost is going to be embedded through that entire uh, supply chain structure. So what we're going to see down the road on food prices, whether proteins or wheat, corn, ag, there's going to be a substantive change. Interestingly enough, um, food and gas commodities is a low percentage of the CPI. So you don't see it, but we still pay for it. I remember mm -hmm. during the financial crisis, you know, oil was hitting 150 a barrel. The U.S. economy was falling off the cliff. And then we were getting surcharges for at the grocery store for milk and cheese. And I was like, 
I was kind of giving the manager a hard time saying, so am I going to get a discount when gas goes down? <laughs> right. They're a little quiet. Good question. Good question. But, you know, that, that in part, it's a bit of concern because Ukraine and Russia provide 25% of the world of wheat. There's just simply a, a, a removal of that product. And so there's going to be that increase. And then in addition to adding on to these energy increases, Russia provides 12% of the world of its um, supplies, the world of, of oil. You know, in Ukraine, oddly enough, it's almost 50% of the world of sunflower and saffron oil production. You know? So we'll see what that means. The fifth and the final is really kind of from an ESG perspective. You know, we had first sort of talked and I saw that uh, Bloomberg article were saying it was about eight and a half billion dollars of sustainably oriented or named funds that had exposures that were essentially a write down. And it goes again a bit to that governance. And I struggle a bit and it's not so much pointing fingers, that's easy, but really more of sort of what is sustainability. And I think it imparts a bit of ownership from the advisor and investor as to, well, what it, understanding what is sustainability is being defined by that fund manager. And I've created a white paper on them. It's not product oriented. It's much more about what are sort of the checklists of things to think about. And it helps you sort of go through that process of making certain, we're trying to align our values with, you know, elevating our financial objectives whether it be children's college or retirement or what have you. And we, if we can do good in that process, well, how, you know, when you're owning government-backed banks by Russia, I struggle on a variety of levels. But it really imparts ESG, in my mind, is really a signaling mechanism. I mean, you're looking at well, how does environmental, how does governance, how does social attributes help provide a competitive business model and more importantly, reduce risks? And so I look at that and I, I struggle. I was like, well, how did they leap over that wall and make that connection? I'm not here to throw and point fingers, but much more sort of the space on that. And this in part is where we're starting to see regulatory changes. The EU has formalized what are these sort of what is green, but you'll see uh, Chairman, uh, SEC, SEC Chairman Gary Ginsler now kind of formalizing best practices and standards as to what does sustainability mean? It's sort of like when you say low fat, when you go to the grocery store, well, what is fat free or low fat or healthy? And he's trying to create a bit of a branding of, of, of terminology that is commonly used. And so I think there's some big changes from this Russian type event. that's going to be multiple fold. So it's a long answer, but <laughs> its implications are kind of large um, on a variety of fronts. And from an interest rate and, you know, advantage position, I mean, you're going to look at something like the Russian bonds, I would assume that their prices have tanked. Um, they, yeah, they're tanked. They are not in full default because they did make a payment. And I noticed that actually uh, Russia bought back about one and a half billion of their bonds with rubles, uh, the euro dollar bonds. So they're able to keep that alive. How long that goes, we don't know. Um, but essentially asset write down is kind of the key because the amount of the amount of um, restrictions or various legal measures to restrict sanctions is the word I was looking is 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 over six thousand I saw in a Bloomberg commentary. Mm -hmm. So I mean, mm -hmm. as to how that comp that country and more importantly, its people are going to be able to function. Yeah, um, I don't know. It, it's it's but I know it was interesting. The first few days there was a lot of traders that uh, and some firms I work with, and I said. Are you at, you know, are you actually taking positions? Because I was seeing bond prices for, you know, Turkey, Russia. And I'm like, I was talking to them. I said, no, no, we're trying to sell them. I said, that's what I thought. <laughs> so, I was like, is you interested? I'm like, no. Yeah, sure. <laughs> what, what about you? Variety of reasons, and plus it's not to the alignment. So, no. Um, yeah. 
Time. How about That's, Ukrainian bonds? What are the thoughts those, there? Those are hammered as well, depending on the duration, anywhere from 60 to 80%. Longer duration or less is hammered. Um, they've been issuing some war bonds. I don't really cover that space with a lot. Um, and when you're dealing with such externalities such as war and legal, you know, I could see some hedge fund players taking some opportunistic views of buying these assets, these securities with the hope that they might see a rebound or some sort of semblance of support from IMF or the NATO alliance. But you're getting into a lot of politics and a lot of and then and then assumptions that are sort of outside my scope. Um, my job is capital preservation and current income, stewarding in a prudent manner, uh, adhering to sustainability. And all those things sort of fall out of the Ukraine, Russia and Ukraine. Just, it just simply just like, that risk stuff. That's, that's way yeah, yeah, too much. It, that's not just a square peg round hole. I mean, that is like a melon, <laughs> melon in a square peg. It so is. I, yeah, I just I just less is less is more. Well, and you mentioned food and I, I certainly have um, contributed and, and shared about Jose Andres's um, work over in Ukraine. And uh, if people have the heart to do that, uh, here's a good opportunity for me to say so that that seems to be one of the great needs is actual food for people in Ukraine, in addition to blankets and socks and, and the rest of it. The most rudimentary things are needed these days. That's well said. Uh, well, I guess in closing here, what do you see as the future uh, trends in this space? In, people have varying opinions about ESG in general, but in global bond markets, sovereign bond use, what do you see? I, you know... <sighs> A lot evolving, particularly on the sovereign side. In, in, in part, a good friend of mine brought me into the discussion with the Gitterman on called The Great Repricing. Mm. And it really, um, she's very talented. She is very, um, she's a critical thinker. And I think, ooh, you know, it, it required me to do a lot of thinking. And again, it was sort of that discovery in the woods. Um, I, there's a lot that's come in part, and that's more, one of my recent white papers on ESG sovereigns and how they're being rated by ESG rating firms. I do think there's a bit of a repricing that we're going to be facing. Um, and what I mean by that is in part, look, you know, climate tends to be, climate climate risk is a very nebulous type of issue. Um, and, you know, it's something that we think is, is akin to sort of the government budget. We're going to kick the can down the road. Um, but it's not so much. A large part of our, you know, our climate carbon budget, if we're going to hit any of these sort of aspirational goals by the Paris Climate Agreement, the United States has got, you know, geez, probably what, three and a half years left on its, uh, on its carbon budget if we have a 67% chance, you know, less than five years, um, if we have a 50% chance. Um, most of these countries are, are not really within that. But it's also a bit of the attitudes. There was a, a survey I found interesting a while ago in 2021 20, by Invesco. And they did a survey of what, 89 sovereign wealth funds, 59 central banks, you know, just casual investors. Sure. sure. You know, it was about <laughs> no, no one important. You know, these are just, you know, just kind <laughs> Retail. of hobbyists, right? <laughs> and it was 57% of them identified that they really don't think that climate and climate related risks are really being taken seriously within the investment process. And when you see that kind of institutional money thinking like this matters, it's going to have a pricing impact. And I think it's really going to have us think about debt trajectories, because when you see countries such as the United States or others, or like Australia, um, which are very heavily dependent upon resource extraction for a variety of aspects, needing to transition to a lower carbon economy, this really means a lot of debt financing in English. And their debt and debt, 
deficit trajectories are going to ultimately change. Um, I, I've, I've been sort of casually finding a connection. Those countries that have a lot of the uh, a poor uh, wealth distribution, um, income distribution, as well as low, uh, low coverage sort of a broad space of healthcare, those were mostly I best identified with during the pandemic, you know, it was like the United States, Mexico, Brazil, India. And there was one other country I can't remember, encapsulated as the core of the first million folks that had unfortunately um, were that passed due to the pandemic mm. have also experienced some of the most pronounced debt trajectories. Yeah. And so there's a connection there. Um, at the end of the day, we look at sovereigns as a being a twofold important mechanism. One, liquidity, one in safety. And I think that in part might have to change. And the, the thing that's really the catalyst and concern is, is that we look to the U.S. Treasury market as a benchmark for uh, setting interest rates and risk premia for whether it be at private equity, whether it's real estate, there's some spread to the U.S. Treasury. And if there was a meaningful repricing, as we've seen just in the last, I mean, the amount that rates the two years gone up, geez, almost 700% in the last <laughs> six months, it was at like 30, it was at 25 basis points. And now it's at 230. That's amazing. 2.3%. I mean, that's, those type of movements are not everyday occurrences, but if we were to start finding it related to other factors, there's going to be repricing from mortgages, credit cards, and everything else, and our costs in standard of living will decline as a result. So that's a little bit of where I think those transmissions do create risk. And when you see a large part of these casual institutional investors starting to take a much more serious discernment to it, I think we'll start seeing that. Down. I don't think it's going to happen today, tomorrow, but I can see over the next three to five years that taking in part a little more attention and even more so over the next decade. A lot of debt financing, interesting, and potentially increased rates for all of us. Could very much be, yes. No, that's fascinating. I'm going to stop the share here so everyone brace yourselves for much larger faces. And I'm going to thank you, Patrick, for coming on and literally educating us. I heard that white paper. Is that something you'd like to share with us and the folks who are listening today? Yeah. If you go, if anyone goes to, to um, Saturna Sustainability and it's the Saturna Sustainability Funds, at the very bottom of our website, you'll see white papers. And on there, the front page, you go to sustainable, Saturna Sustainable Funds, you'll see our impact report, clearly the, the sustainable equity and sustainable bond fund. But at the very bottom, it's kind of like we have like a, our, 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 a website's a little bit like a refrigerator. It has a lot of magnets. So okay. Just fair warning. If you go at the very bottom, click on white papers, you'll see a lot of our white papers with, um, uh, with regards to um, how to evaluate the sustainability of sustainable funds. That's one that I find is kind of a practical one. The ESG sovereign risk is one I've mentioned. I have a white paper on global bonds. And that one really kind of characterizes that global bonds actually offer some of the best risk return attributes. In fact, there is one bond, global bond net benchmark, absent the T-bills that has never had a negative return since 2009. Um, I won't tell you. You won't tell us. It. We have to go. Yeah. We have to go to your you website. You have to find it. And Give I have a click. some of it. Yeah. Oh, that's, um, that's the best clickbait I've ever heard in my life. Yes. So, you know, if... if there's a, there'll be a, there'll be a Starbucks surprise if you find it. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. You have to say, start, you can't say Cracker Jacks. Most people may not know that though. I think, I think our listeners would probably be old enough for that. Yeah. Um, is, is there any other takeaway besides maybe going to that site and educating ourselves that, that we should as is just consumers, maybe as investors take as a, as a next first step. 
you know, that, that's a good question. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm always more than happy to answer questions. And it's, you know, and, and clearly the stewardship is through the, the importance in, in council of their financial advisors, such, such as talented people like you. That really, it's a relationship. It's a process. And it's, it's, it's like a garden. And you build sort of that relation, that strategy, and you do a lot of pruning and a lot of sort of adjustments over time. It's not one thing, but it's multiple things of behaviors that makes a difference. I'm the asset manager. My job is to poke my nose globally and provide that asset allocation sliver that supports you and your clients. And so there's an expertise that I have, but from a financial planning, that's not what I do, even though I have a certified financial planner like you. Um, my focus is on this. So it's really kind of engaging the advisor your financial advisor as to how you can have your portfolio reflect your diet. And that in part really helps structure that conversation because there's so much that evolves such as you have and you've learned. There's different tools that are evolving and more importantly that have yet to evolve that you can put on the radar. I couldn't have said it better. Engage your financial advisor. That's from the lips of Mr. Patrick Drum, CFP, CFA, MBA. Patrick, thank you so much for being with us. I look forward to connecting with you and learning from you well into the future. It's been a pleasure and thank you so much. For You're welcome. And with that, we yield the balance of your day. Bye-bye.